0: This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about large-scale geologic movements that led to the reversal of drainages on the southern edge of the Colorado Plateau. It's a good show. Stay tuned.
1: And a lot of people go, like, well, how do how you just switch a river going one way to going the other way? And, well, the answer is... Uh, structural and tectonic, that is, large-scale movements in the Earth's crust that indicate which way water will flow. Water flows downhill, and as everybody knows, the only way it can go.
0: That's geologist and cobbleologist Andre Potochnik. Today we are talking with Andre about his extensive research of ancient river deposits in northern Arizona, and how this data is used in piecing together the flow directions of drainage systems that include the Colorado River.
1: I'm Andre potocnik I've got a doctorate in geology and I'm a river guide in the Grand Canyon. I do research in geology and I also uh, do a lot of guiding in outdoor places. I've done that for many, many years. So that's kind of who I am, what I do. I live in Flagstaff, Arizona.
0: Today we are talking about some drainage reversals that happened involving the Colorado river and other drainages kind of on the south end of the Colorado Plateau and south of the Plateau. So what was happening during the, you know, from the last 60 million years is some structural and topographic inversion of some sort. Can we start by you just roughly painting a picture of the timing of these tectonic events?
1: Ancient northeast flowing streams flowed from a highland that used to exist south of the Colorado Plateau, a large mountain range, similar to the modern-day Rockies. These rivers flowed northeastward onto what is today the Colorado Plateau and probably ended up flowing all the way to the Mississippi River embayment, which was in existence at that time. Eventually, the plate tectonic situation changed along the coast of California between the Pacific Plate and and the North American Plate Changed in such a way that the actual stresses on the continent, well inboard of the actual boundaries and Andreas Paul, were changed. And the compressional stresses, of which once generated this ancestral island, were released. And the continental crust then began to subside and relax, spread out uh, to the east and west and that caused the ancient mountain system we call the Mogollon Highland, that was uh, south of the plateau, to collapse, and the entire southern edge of the plateau gently flexed back downward to the southwest, uh, causing the ultimate reversal of the drainage.
0: And what was it? What was the timing about of that? Of oh, the timing, the switch from compressional to extensional.
1: It most, most geologists <coughs> concur that it started around 30 million years ago.
0: Okay. So basically, we're, the Colorado Plateau uplift more or less con- coincidence with the Laramide orogeny. We're talking 80 to 50 million years ago, something like that?
1: Yeah, you know, generally 80 to 40. That was the general, what we call Laramide period of time.
0: Right. So the Plateau is high, but these the Mogollon highlands are... I'm guessing higher and they are shedding drainages off onto the the plateau to the Northeast. Yes. Okay. And then this Mogollon Rim collapses because of the extension and the plateau is left as a high in comparison. Correct. More or less what we're talking about. Okay, cool. So a lot of your research includes so much, you know, all the stratigraphy, Uh, south of the plateau, trying to piece together this. And a lot of what you researched includes the study of paleocurrent indicators, more or less gravels, so ancient river gravels, terraces. I was hoping you could explain a bit about how studying such deposits helps you understand the relative flow of ancient rivers.
1: Yeah, a paleocurrent indicator that indicates direction of flow can be ascertained by a couple of different methods. The one principle, one I use, is called stream imbrication. And imbrication is the a layering of gravels, copples of different size and boulders, uh, in a certain angle. They all tend to angle in this direction of flow. They represent movement along the channel bottom, of course, the movement of these gravels, that then comes to a stop when the river flood subsides that's carrying them. Since many of the boulders tend to be kind of have some flat dimension to them, they will tend to layer such that they are tilted upward in the direction of flow. And that is the the angle at which they're least likely to get transported further. And so you get this kind of a shingling effect of the gravels that can be observed in ancient river gravel deposits that I worked on. And by measuring many, many, many hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of measurements over a very large region, I was able to piece together the flow directions. What I do is I take for a given locality, for instance, I'll I'll measure as many measurements as I can get and then plot those measurements on a uh, what's called a rose diagram. And a rose diagram sort of shows you the distribution and numbers of data points in uh, different directions within a a given range typically. And then the program that I use to analyze the rose diagram also provides a, a mean vector for that particular location. And I plot those mean vectors and along with the rose diagrams over numerous localities over a large region. And I'm able to piece together the fabric of the ancient rivers. Because you have to realize and remember this, all rivers meander. They change direction according to whether they're going around a bend this way or a bend that way. And so you're going to get a lot of variance um, based upon the meandering of the ancient river. And what we're trying to get to was to get the general flow directions of the ancient rivers and how they switch direction over time.
0: Yes, a lot of your research was done in the Apache Paleo Canyon, which is somewhat coincident with the Salt River drainage. Am I getting that right? No. Correct. Okay. Were there outcrops as well to look at, yeah. to establish that timing?
1: Yes, exactly. After I'd finished my master's thesis and I'd put together this ancient alluvial system that flowed to the Northeast, Jim Faltz and I were doing a little field trip out in the Salt River Canyon, and he was showing me around his field area we kind of realized that there was this um, key deposits or series of deposits in the salt river canyon of today that represented an ancient river that was flowing back to the southwest that predates the modern salt river and so i realized it became possible to actually flesh out the story of how the river system reversed direction over time because prior to that We knew that ancient rivers flowed to the Northeast. Okay, that was well-established, but we didn't know when and how the river switched back to the modern Salt River of today, so there was a lot of time that that we didn't know what was happening, millions of years of time that took place for that to happen, and here was a key deposit in the Salt River Canyon of today within the confines of the Apache Paleo Canyon would tell the story of the reversal. And so that was when I became interested in and, and went back for my PhD and kind of finished the story, if you will, and of how the river switched direction.
0: That change in paleo gravel direction, is that one of the key pieces of evidence of that change? I mean, what else do you see that supports that in in the stratigraphy?
1: What I did was, in my PhD, was I mapped the critical region between Jim Paul's area and the area that I had worked on in my master's work, and I was able to detail mapV, the ancient topography of the Apache Paleo Canyon, and describe the stratigraphic sections of, of gravels and sandstones that made up the river to the northeast and the following river that flowed back to the southwest. So those deposits are fortuitously still preserved in that section, uh, particularly in that section between what we call Canyon Creek Fault and Cherry Creek Fault, two major north trending faults that the Paleo Canyon bisects. And I was able to then tie those stratigraphic sections into time, geologic time, by age-dating layers of volcanic rock or volcanic ash, what we call tuff, interlayered with these sediments and I was able to put, put them in time and so I was able to kind of flesh out that period of time in which the drainage reversal occurred and I also tie it to the movement on these two major fault lines that cross the uh, southern boundary of the of the plateau oh cool the, uh, so, so... these faults turned out to be pretty instrumental uh, very instrumental in the drainage reversal just as the faults changed direction of movement, indicating the structural collapse of the Mogollon Highland, so too did the entire ancestral Mogollon Highland tilt back down to the southwest. Not just movement on faults, but there was also regional flexure of the southern plateau boundary in this area.
0: So by dating these volcanic tufts, you are able to see that reversal in stream direction, and it was around that 30 million year ago timeframe?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, oh. the best indicator I have for the, the reversal of the movement on the faults that would indicate the structural collapse of the Mogion Highland mountain range is dated at about 25 and a half million years. So that's the closest I could come to nailing the timing of the beginning of the structural collapse of the Mogion Highland. I think it's pretty convincing work it certainly it's been it's the most definitive work that's been done so far in this region that I know of in describing the drainage reversal it, this intermediary period of between northeast flowing and southwest flowing rivers lasted from about 18 and a half million years ago to about 14 and a half million years ago that's almost about a 4 million year period which things weren't really flowing anywhere. I mean, it was just local streams coming off of local mountains, filling ponded basins within the Apache Paleo Canyon. And then that's followed by the reversal and the, uh, and a, a cutting of a Paleo Valley through those sediments uh, by a southwest flowing stream that I call the Dagger Canyon Paleo Valley. So what we have within the Apache Paleo Canyon is this really interesting juxtaposition of a bedrock paleo canyon three to four thousand feet in depth cut into the bedrock carved by a northeast flowing river which is then filled with sediment or almost half filled with sediment and that inset within that the sediments of that paleo canyon that that represents the final culmination of northeast flow ponding and so on is inset into those sediments is another paleo canyon, I call it a Paleo Valley, to distinguish it from the Paleo Canyons that preceded it. This Paleo Valley, in turn, was carved several thousand feet deep and subsequently filled back up with gravels that were flowing that had been transported southwestward within it and one of the interesting and then the modern salt river has incised down through the whole shebang and exposed in the walls of the modern salt river canyon the relationships that i just described a paleo valley inset within a paleo canyon and one representing rivers going to the northeast the paleo valley uh, coming back to the southwest and so the salt river hasn't old sort of proto proto salt river that I call the Dagger Canyon Paleo Valley that predates the modern salt.
0: You mentioned earlier, the drainage reversal from northeast flowing streams to Southwest has been known for decades. What has your research nailed down in terms of some of the details of that reversal that were not known previously?
1: Well, the rocks that I described, it had been known since the 1950s. Charlie Hunt and and, uh, Cooley and Davidson, they described these rim gravels up on the southern edge of the plateau that are perched up there today over a broad region are composed of gravels, lithologies, that is rock types, that can only have been derived from the south. Precambrian rocks that only exist and are exposed to the south. So they they were long recognized, these rim gravels, as, as they were called, as being representing an ancient river system flowing nor- generally, they thought, northward at the time. And I was able to go up and measure them and, and determine that they were flowing more northeastward. So they have been a fascination to geologists for decades, and nobody had really studied them. And they knew that their ancient river system had existed from an ancient Mogollon Highland from the south. But nobody had really tackled the question of well can you really tie them with similar outcrops of tertiary sedimentary rock to the south and determine if those rocks to the south are tied to the mogion rim gravels and that's what i was able to do for my in my master's thesis work and then continuing with my phd work the difficult parts of studying these rocks you would think that well why hasn't somebody why didn't somebody go in there and study them a long time ago the difficulty that I found, and and this was before Google Earth or before there were <laughs> before there was a good uh, aerial photography of the, the Apache Reservation. That's a big region where it encompassed most of my work. Two problems with studying these rocks existed primarily. One is that they're very poorly exposed. You can map their aerial extent, but to actually because they're not hard lithified rocks, they don't form cliffs, they form slopes. Mm -hmm. And it's a thickly forested region that doesn't allow for good exposures of the rocks to be able to describe them. So a lot of the work that I did was just trying to find the darn outcrops that I could actually describe the rocks and and measure sections of stratigraphic sections. And spend an extraordinary amount of time and effort Doing that with the assistance of the the White Mountain Apache tribe, they allowed me to go in everywhere I wanted, and I did. They gave me basically a carte blanche permit to travel wherever I wanted. They basically accepted me as working for them right. because I was helping them to understand the geology of their reservation, and that they saw value in that. So that was a mutually beneficial relationship. So poor exposures. Was, is a problem, and then access to the Apache land, because yeah. the Apache are a very tightly controlled res- reservation. They don't let people just wander around.
0: A lot of your work was done in this Apache Paleo Canyon. How then do you apply it to, say, the Colorado River drainage?
1: Oh, that's a, a very interesting uh, <laughs> question. <laughs> we know that these rim gravels exist in the Grand Canyon as well they're on the rim of the grand canyon or near the rims of the grand canyon but unfortunately the grand canyon doesn't preserve like the salt river canyon does the history of the drainage reversal right how the colorado river came into being and existed today what this study does is it documents deep paleo canyons Carved almost as deep as the modern Grand Canyon, like the Apache Paleo Canyon, for instance, that were predecessor canyons to the the Salt River, which flows southwestward through, in this case, the Apache Paleo Canyon. What occurred to me when I was, uh, after I kind of finished my work, I was finishing it, was that I thought, well, if ancient canyons may have been carved in the southern plateau boundary in eastern Arizona, then why not in western Arizona as well? Because we see we have the evidence for the ancient rim gravels in that area as well. Then I became very curious to see if I could apply what I've learned in the Salt River Canyon, because the two regions, Grand Canyon and Salt River Canyon, are very similar geographically and paleogeographically, ancient geographies. There, 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 there's a Mogollon Highland extended all the way across Arizona to the Grand Canyon region, And clearly, the Colorado River is passing through an ancient mountain system that collapsed in that region as well. One of the mysteries of Grand Canyon is, well, when did it form? When did the canyon get cut? And there was quite a discussion about this back in 2008 when Rebecca Flowers studied the uplift of the ancient mountain system near the mouth of the Grand Canyon and came up with some numbers for the uplift of the the Mogollon Highland in that region, been 70 million years 75 74 million years ago now that implication of that uplift was that there must have been if there was a big uplift at that time there must have been a big canyon cut into the southern edge of the plateau in western arizona and she she suggested that the grand canyon may have begun to be cut by ancient northeast flowing rivers onto the plateau from the Mogollon highland and that Similar to the Salt River Canyon, the modern salt has simply uh, sort of taken advantage of the fact that the canyon already existed there. And when it found its course off of the southern edge of the plateau, and simply had a predecessor canyon already carved for it to eventually integrate to the southwest, like the Colorado River has done in western Arizona. And uh, I've been advocating this for years. The Grand Canyon may well be a lot older than six million years.
0: Hmm. Six million years would indicate it was only cut as the river was going southwest. But what you're saying is it could have started being cut as early as the original uplift of the Mogion. Correct. Close to 70 million years. Wow. And so what, what would we have to do to figure out when it actually did start getting cut?
1: We got to study in more detail the ancient rim gravel sequence. Oh in the Grand Canyon area Mm -hmm. and see if we can see remnants of the ancient geographies that may be indicative of an ancient canyon, a Laramide-aged canyon, that may have been cut to some depth. It would have carved a deep enough bedrock canyon that when the Colorado River came into existence as a west southwest flowing river, that there was already a canyon there for it to follow.
0: Yeah. Andre, I appreciate you talking to Science Moab and uh, learned a lot today about these drainage reversals. Okay, yeah. This episode of Science Moab is sponsored in part by Wildland Trekking, unforgettable hiking vacations. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.